what entitled my sermon today, Wrongs and Rights. We will have people commit wrongs against us. And typically, when we are wronged, the first thing we think about is my right, my rights. You see, Americans are very over-concerned about our rights. The Declaration of Independence, and these, these are good things, the Declaration of Independence talks about our right to life and to liberty and to pursuit of happiness. The First Amendment to the Constitution talks about our right to free speech and our right to free press and our right to assemble and our right for freedom of religion. It goes on with all these various amendments. Today we have victims' rights. We have workers' rights. We have prisoners' rights. We have children's rights. We have women's rights. We have civil rights. And we could go on and on. And it's not that these are bad. My focus is our culture looks at rights. And just naturally within our hearts, because we tend to be self-centered, we look at my rights. My rights. When we're wronged, my tendency, and yours most of the time, I'm sure, if we're not careful, is toward getting revenge. Our culture pushes it. It's amazing as I hear about the, the dog-eat-dog world and, and the business world, and, and, and there's that mindset that revenge and getting even is a part of leadership. Just saw last night on a website, on a news website, I don't get mad. I get even. I get even. Well, again, as we continue through this series, today we're going to be looking at, at two more contrasts. If you remember, each of the last uh, series or weeks we've been going through the series, we've looked at passages that deal with issues, whether it was divorce or, um, or whatever. In each situation, Christ begins with, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. Remember when he said that, he was saying, you've been taught, the Pharisees have taught you this way, but I'm going to teach you the right way. Today we're going to be looking at two different passages. They kind of go together, but they focus on different issues. It's all about our lives being in the kingdom of God. The first passage we look at is going to be looking at our response to wrongs. And Christ uses four different cases where we, our tendency is to want to get revenge. And he shows us that we should not seek revenge. Instead, that we should be humble. The second passage goes a step further. You know, sometimes people hurt us. We're wronged sometimes by accident or by neglect or just sometimes just by accident. But Christ goes on in the second passage, and he says that we're to love our enemies, we're to love those who hate us. Christ, again, raises that bar of righteousness. And again, he's radical. He's radical in what he says. Well, let's look at verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Well, Christ begins here by quoting a, a passage that comes, it's both in, it's in Exodus, it's in Leviticus, it's in Deuteronomy. And it's referencing back to an old, old law that goes back probably to the, to the second millennium. And it's really the law of retribution. If you can think back then to the culture, there was no controls. There were no laws, so to speak. And the, the law basically said that the punishment for a wrong should, be, should correspond with the wrong that was done. Therefore, the eye for the eye, or the tooth for a tooth. And we can look at that and we can say, man, that seems archaic. That, this seems so brutal, eye for an eye. But remember, it was good. It was good because it limited excessive punishment. Kent Hughes, in his book, writes, The typical primitive blood feud knew nothing about equity. A small infraction by one tribe against another, for instance, trespassing, was met with a beating, which was returned by a homicide, which was then countered by genocide. And this law, at least in paper, was supposed to do away with that excessive type of response. And we need to remember as we go through this, this law was not for individuals to take care of one-to-one. -one. In other words, if someone comes to me and does something to me, I'm not, I wasn't supposed to go to them and gouge out their eye. Um, it, it was to be handled by the courts, and it was to be done in such a way that it was fair. Jesus, however, as he talks to the multitudes, he takes this law and he turns it upside down for a new one. Let me go ahead and read the, the, the rest of this, this first passage here. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And we see here again in this passage... Christ saying, don't seek revenge. Don't try to get even. And the first right, as we think about our rights as Americans and our rights as individuals, the first right that Christ says that we should be willing to sacrifice is a right to dignity and to honor. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Christ calls for us to swallow our pride, to not get even. Slapping one's cheek in the culture of Israel was not a physical thing, so to speak. It had, had more to do with an insult. 
For a Jew to slap someone was demeaning. It was condescending. It was an attitude of disdain. It would be similar, I don't know whether you remember, but five years or so ago when then-President Bush was in, in the Middle East, in Iraq, I think it was, and he was having a press conference. And one of the men in the audience took his shoe off and he threw it and almost hit President Bush. For the Middle East, for that culture, that was an insult. Beyond just throwing the shoe, all the people in the Middle East knew that was an insult. It was like it showed the hate and the disdain that this man had. In the same way, when we, when we see and, and hear turning the other cheek, it's, it's not talking about fighting. It's talking about insult. Romans 12, 17 through 21 talks about not avenging ourselves and leaving it to the wrath of God. For as written, vengeance is mine. Our tendency so often is, just like these ladies in the drama a while ago, is to figure out a way. We will help God get even. For those of you who don't know him or don't remember him, Tom Skinner was an African-American who came to Christ probably in the late 70s or 80s. He came to Christ out of a, a tough, tough gang, probably the largest and toughest gang in New York City called the Harlem Lords. And Mr. Skinner immediately left the gang the next day. And his desire was to leave the violence and the crime. He began to spread the gospel. But it wasn't but three or four weeks he was playing football game, pickup football game. And he was on offense, and as he blocked a guy for his running back to score a touchdown, he was headed back to the huddle, and this white guy comes up to him, and he hits him in the stomach. And Mr. Skinner fell over, and then the guy hit him on the back, and then began kicking him, and began to use the N-word, and say, you dirty so-and-so, I'm going to teach you a thing or two. Mr. Skinner, Tom, at that age, as a young guy, got up and brushed himself off. And he said, because of Jesus Christ, I still love you. He played the game. After the game was over, the guy who had hit him and, and attacked him came to him and he said, Tom, he said, I learned so much more about life. And I learned, you knocked, you knocked more prejudice out of me with your words and saying, I love you than if you were to kick me in the jaw. Tom Skinner was never a doormat, if you knew him. He was a brilliant evangelist, very sharp 
chaplain for Washington Redskins. But because God changed his life, he responded differently. Jesus, in this point, is saying that we should have an attitude like Mr. Skinner. We're to be humble and gentle so that the gospel might not be hindered in any way. Is there anyone that you or I are holding a grudge against? Have you been insulted? Have you been treated with contempt? Has your reputation been harnished or tarnished rather by someone? Do we need to forgive? Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're all hurt in different ways. It's amazing what people can say, sometimes not thinking, sometimes totally by accident. But we're called to the give so the gospel can be furthered. Well, the second right that we should be willing to sacrifice is our security. In verse 40, Christ says, And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, we need to understand the culture. Back then, in Christ's times, people didn't have a lot of clothes. And clothes were expensive. And typically, they had a pair of shoes. And they had one or no more than probably two, the, the normal people, common persons, would have maybe two tunics, which is the inside inner clothing, and then the cloak or robe, they would typically have one. And the law permitted, if there was a, a lawsuit, the law permitted for someone through court to take a tunic, but he could not take the cloak. You see, the cloak was also a man's or a woman's blanket at night in, in the Middle East with the cold, cold weather. They were required to have that. There's a passage in Exodus 22:26 that says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. The cloak was important. The court would never give someone's cloak away. But Christ is saying that we should be willing to do that. Especially if we owe someone something, if we've gone to court. So the gospel is not harmed by our lifestyles. What does this mean? I think that Christ here is using hyperbole. Hyperbole is kind of intentional exaggeration. Figures of speech that aren't to be taken literally, but they stress a point. Examples of Hyperbole. I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. That was a good one that Pastor Wayne used to use. I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. 
I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Get the point? I'm hungry. Or I'm starving to death. Well, I don't think many of us are starving to death. But the point is, we're hungry. Or he's got a truckload of money. Or these books weigh a ton. I've heard that from many a student. The point Christ is making is we're not to value or honor things more than we honor and value the kingdom. Craig Kenner, who has a commentary totally on the sociological cultural aspects of Matthew, says this passage is, is a graphic image. And if pressed literally, it implies that we should never take anyone to court. But that's not what Christ is saying. And he goes on, he says, that, that it challenges us to value the kingdom above anything that this world can take away from us. That we're to value the kingdom more than anything that can be taken away from us through court. If we're honest with ourselves, we value our property, whether it's our homes, our automobiles, our clothes, our food, our iPhones and our computers. And Christ is saying to us, don't hold too tightly to these things. Instead, remember these things were given to us and all that we have should be used for the glory of the Lord and to further the kingdom. As I think of this, as I went through this, I always had to stop and apply each of these to my own life. And I want you, too, to think. Do you, do I value things more than the kingdom of God? Do I hold on to my possessions? Do I purchase things that I don't necessarily need? I still remember an individual here in the church who his car was damaged, and he received the money for the repair. But he and his wife talked, and they decided that rather than repairing their vehicle, that they would use the money and to send to a college student in another country. Christ is saying to us, don't hold on to these things. Don't value your possessions more than you value the kingdom of God. Well, the third right that we should be willing to sacrifice is our freedom and, and our time. Verse 41, we read, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Again, the culture. The culture is so important as we follow the flow here. Remember, Israel was oppressed, was in control, was controlled by Rome. And Roman law allowed its soldiers, as they passed along, to go up to someone like Rick or whomever and give them part of their whether it's their, their backpacks or their, their 
or their, their tools or their weapons and carry them for a mile. They were required to. And for the Jew, it was, it was bad enough to be oppressed. Can you imagine here in the United States? If we were controlled by another country, someone that we didn't like, and then we were forced to carry their loads, and then Christ comes to us and says, don't just carry it that one mile, carry it two. Can you imagine what the Jewish person thought? We cherish our freedom. We cherish our time. But Christ says when we're forced to go a mile, go further. That may mean sometimes that we shouldn't be resentful. When someone calls and they're hurting and, and they talk for a long, long time and this valuable time that we had stuff planned for, maybe we shouldn't be resentful. Maybe at work we should do these extra projects maybe sometimes with a cheerful attitude. The Greeks said that it was impossible to be happy if one must serve. The Greeks said it was impossible to be happy if you're serving. And yet, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says, but I am among you as one who serves. Christ came to serve. And he says that we are to be like our master. We're to be servants. And so, so far then, Christ has exhorted the believer, the kingdom dweller, to sacrifice our dear rights, our rights to dignity and honor, our rights to security, our rights to our own time and freedom. But the fourth right that we should be willing to give up according to Christ is we should be willing to sacrifice our money. In verse 42, we read, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs, and don't refuse the one who, who wants to borrow. We all know that Judaism recognized giving of alms to beggars, and it also encouraged um, work. And, and, and the culture there really was such that if one was begging, they had no other option. They had nowhere to go because the culture so pressed the idea of, of stressed work and hard work. Craig Kenner, again, stresses that this is, is rhetorical speech, again, exaggeration for a point, and he stresses that giving anything requested to anyone who asked for it would quickly lead to the giver becoming a beggar. And I'll share more later. But there's a key principle here that we hang on to. And Christ said it, in the Old Testament is full of passages. Proverbs 28, 27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not uh, want. Psalm 37, 
26, he is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. There's so many principles that we should give. We should give. Harvest of first fruits is a great way for us as a church to reach out to those who are in need. But, but what does it mean to me? And, and what does it mean to you? We're always, again, to, to respond in cheerfulness. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talks about God loves a cheerful giver. But there are questions. What about these professional beggars that we say? I, I read this past year in the Tribune. There, there are professional beggars who come in from the suburbs. They, they dress for the job. And they come and they seek handouts. And so they make anywhere from 20000 up to sixty, I think $80,000 is what some make. Then there's the drug addict and the alcoholic. I, I still remember coming here from Surgeon, Alabama, a small rural area, and I moved to Humboldt Park, and all around me were alcoholics and drug addicts. And I remember my heart, I wanted to give, and I remember, and I, I knew the guys were alcoholics, and I would go ahead and I would give them food. I never gave them money, but I would buy them food, and I would see the big, full liquor bottles roll down sometimes, and, and I struggled so much. Well, how, how do I handle that? I, I never forget one time when the inner city impact was on North Avenue, and a lady came in, and she was so tearful. And she said, I need, I need money for formula. And, I, you know, I was just really quick to say, we'll, we'll help you. I'll get one of the ladies on staff. And there was a, a store right across the street. And I said, we'll, we'll buy your formula for you. And she said, no, no. She says, the formula I need is a special formula. I can't get it over here. I have to go down to another store. It's down two or three miles. I said, you know what? That's okay. You can either you can ride with our one of our staff, or you can you can drive down and, and she'll meet you at that store. And, and as I was talking, this lady's face just turned, you know, just red, and she was angry, and she began just cursing me. And 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 and, I, and, I, and again, I said, Miss, I want to I want to help you. But say she wasn't wanting the money for formula. D.A. Carson writes a similar story in, when he's in Cambridge at the university out there. He said there was a large number of beggars all around, and, and they were quick to kind of get those soft-hearted guys. And, and, and Don Carson says that, you know, that he would make the point to always reach out and offer time to find a place for shelter or offer to go buy food. And he says almost always they would curse him because they wanted the money for alcohol. Carson goes on and he, he tells the story of a research student there with, with him there at the time who, who felt very strongly that God called him in all cases to give whatever asked. 
and he soon became bankrupt. So I, I tell these stories because it doesn't take away from what Christ is calling us to do. Remember the hyperboles a while ago. Remember, he has a truckload of money. It means he's got a lot of money. There's a principle there. These books weigh a ton. They're heavy. Christ is saying we're to be sensitive and we'll be to be caring and we're to care for the needs. And Dr. Carson says that they're able to work with this guy and, and help him to realize that he wasn't helping the people by doing that. I think that we all acknowledge that our attitude toward money shows the depth of our faith. And, and as I look across the room here, I'm sure that there are many of us who have given money over and over. I know I have. I know I have. And there are times I would rather err on the side of compassion than to err on the side of being white. So please hear what I'm saying. Please know that God calls us to give and, 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 and we're to give in a discerning way and we're to care for their needs. God wants us to do that. We don't hold on to our money. Well, we've talked about all these rights, rights to dignity and honor, our rights to security, to our freedom and our time and here to our possessions or money. The Apostle Paul, as he was defending himself before the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, do we, talking about he and Barnabas, do we not have the right for food and drink? Do we have the right to take on a believing wife with us? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not, to not have to work for a living? And he goes on and on, and he says, that if others have these rights, shouldn't we? He says, but we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. We put up with anything. We give up our rights, the things that we deserve. We give them up so that the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the kingdom might be expanded. Well, the first section here then encourages us to live in such a way that we're willing to give up our rights again so the kingdom of heaven may grow. In this next section, verses 43 through 48, we see that Christ demands that we love our enemies. And this section takes that previous Section one step further, as I mentioned earlier. Before, we could be wronged by accident or by negligence, by mistake. But here, Christ goes further and he says, Love, love your enemy. Let's look at, at 43 and 44 first. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Pharisees 
as they have done in all these other passages, distorted this text by adding to it. Nowhere in the Bible did it ever say that you're to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Nowhere does it say hate your enemy. Nowhere. But they added it. The Jews had this idea that only Israelites were their neighbors. Leviticus 19.8 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against sons of your own people. Of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God had commanded, of course, the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanites. And that seemed to show in hatred. But if we're, if we're not careful, we can all kind of see our neighbor as those that are close by us and that are like us. You know, I remember growing up down south, and I've made a joke about it before, but, you know, those, those Yankees from up north, you know, they weren't quite one of us. Kind of... Stay back a little bit. And maybe sometimes we're Puerto Rican men. Puerto Ricans, me and my bro. <laughs> the Jews felt very strongly that they only had to love their own people. They failed to see other passages that were very, very easy to see. Exodus 23, 4 and 5 says, If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that has strayed away, take it back to his owner. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, has collapsed under its load, do not walk by it. Instead, stop and help. And Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. I'm pretty sure at this point in Jesus' life, the, when Jesus was there, I think the Israelites almost thought that they honored God by hating their neighbors, their neighboring countries. But again, we see Jesus and his radical thinking. It was almost bizarre. And it's very unreasonable, I'm sure, in the eyes of the Israelites. We see in verse 44 and 45, as we continue on in this passage, we're given two reasons that we're to love our enemies. 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. First reason is that Christ says that we're to love our enemies and pray for them is so that we'll be like God. And, and, and Jesus here is not saying that we gain the status of being son of God or child of God by that. Rather, he's saying that as we do these things, that we demonstrate that we're children of God when we love our enemies. 
we show that we're sons, daughters of the Lord. The second reason is it distinguishes us from the world. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward is that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The tax collectors, we all know, they were kind of like at the bottom of the, the social uh, scale there, right? They were looked down on, and, and, and because of the corruption of, of the system, they were crooks for the most part. And Christ says to the believers, if you only love those who love you, then you know better than these tax collectors and and those Gentiles, too, that you guys kind of look down on, you know better. You know better. Christ, again, is saying we go beyond the norm. He wants others to see Christ in us. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of H.A. Ironside, a, a great preacher of the past who had commentaries galore. Um, but Ironside was visiting in Arizona at a hospital. He met this poor Navajo uh, woman who was being nursed back to health by a Christian doctor and, and the, the Navajo nurses there. And um, she'd been thrown out of her tribe for whatever reason for four days and, and almost died. And she was in the hospital for nine weeks. And... Uh, one day, one of the nurses said to her, no, she first said, um, after nine weeks of being there, she said, I can't understand it. Why did the doctor do all that for me? He's a white man, and I'm an Indian. And I never heard of anything like this before. And the Navajo nurse said, you know, it's the love of Jesus Christ that made him do it. And she said to him, who is this Christ that you're talking about? What an opportunity. The gospel was shared. And over the weeks, the staff prayed for this lady. So after a few weeks, several weeks passed, and one day, someone asked her again, can't you trust this Savior? Turn from the idols that you have worshipped. Trust him as the son of the living God. And as the woman was thinking about her answer, just pondering in her mind, the door opened. And this doctor walked in. The lady's face lit up. And she said, if Jesus is anything like this doctor, I can trust him forever. And she came to the Lord Jesus Christ and she accepted him as her Savior. You see, the love of Christ reached this woman. It's all his love. And the Lord wants you and me 
to reach out beyond our comfort zone. He wants us to reach out beyond those that we know. He wants us to even love those who are enemies. Well, finally, verse 48, we're told to be perfect like God. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. It's a command. And perfect here means to reach an intended end or a completion. And it's mature. And some could say, have tried to argue that it just means that we're supposed to be mature. And there is that aspect of being, being perfect positionally. Michael Wilkins, Dr. Michael Wilkins, who's prof at Talbot Seminary, writes that this is a command for the present. It's a promise and a hope also that we will be perfect. Now, just as we can expect our children to look like our parents, our Father in heaven expects his children to look like him. Just talking today, I didn't ask him, but, but um, Pastor Chuck was sharing how when he was uh, in, uh, in Pennsylvania that his, his son and daughter was, uh, daughter was sharing um, that people come up to him that had graduated from Moody at a pastor's conference. And they didn't know him. And they said, are you, any, are you related to Chuck Morey? She said, yes, thank you. It's my father. Miles and miles away. People can look at Zachary and say, that's, that's Raph's son. But we're right here. But hundreds of miles away, there's that thing of looking like Mother and father and daughter. God is in the process of remaking us. Leviticus 27, I love this. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. I love that. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Well, we need to examine ourselves this morning. Such a powerful, tough passage. Have we given up our rights? Have we been willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to sacrifice our honor and dignity for the spread of the kingdom? Are we willing to give up some of our securities, our time and our freedom, our possessions, money? God loved us, the Bible says, when we were yet his enemies. 
yet he drew us to himself. He adopted us as his children, and he gave us new life through his spirit. He's poured his transforming love into our hearts. It enables us to love our enemies. Psalm 18, 30 through 32 says, God's way is perfect. Who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock. And he says, God arms me with strength and he makes my way perfect. God's desire is for us to be perfect. He enables us as we look to him. Let's pray. Our Father, our Lord, we've Talk about so much. And Father, if we're honest with ourselves, oh Lord, this is a tough passage. Father, you call us, Lord, to, to give up. And yet, Father, we know, we know that it's well worth it. Father, help us individually, Lord, to be willing to do whatever it takes so there's no obstacle to the gospel in our lives. Father, we thank you that your spirit lives within us and that you enable us, Father, to love the enemy and to pray for them. Oh, Father, make us perfect. We know, Father, we will never be perfect here. We look forward to that day. But, oh, Father, grow us and mature us. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have that hope that one day we'll look like you. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.